welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Mira E. Deo, Professor of Law at Thomas Jefferson School of Law and Newcomb Fellow Research Chair in Diversity in Law at the American Bar Foundation. We will discuss her book, Unequal Profession, Race and Gender in Legal Academia, which is published by Stanford University Press. So welcome to the show, Mira. Thank you for having me. Not a great pleasure. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed talking with you uh, about this book in the book club that Nicholson convened last week. And it gave me a lot of thoughts for the interview today. But before we dive into the questions that I have, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the book itself. In other words, can you talk a little bit about the study that you did and what kind of information you gathered and what the goal of the project was? Sure. Um, I'll start with the goal of the project, and it was really to shine a light on the experiences of law faculty members from a diverse range of backgrounds and at schools that cover elite schools all the way to access-oriented schools in all regions of the country, and including pre-tenure to senior tenured faculty members, leaders, as well as faculty members who aren't in formal administrative roles. Uh, So really, I was just hoping to cover as much as I could about the personal and professional lives of law faculty members to share some of what those experiences are and to look specifically at race times gender challenges and the ways in which particular experiences in law teaching may be different for women faculty as compared to men, for faculty of color compared to white faculty, and especially for the experiences of women of color faculty, which really haven't been documented in any way um, before this project began. So that's sort of the the goal of the book um, in terms of, you know, the the what the book does generally um it draws from survey and interview data from almost 100 law professors from around the country and as i mentioned a moment ago the the project really seeks to expose race times gender challenges throughout legal academia and you know ultimately in my findings i found that these range from mansplaining to heap-heating to silencing or the devaluing of scholarship from colleagues, um, but also classroom confrontations and biased teaching evaluations and other challenging interactions with students. Um, Of course, all of this creates some difficult outcomes with regard to tenure and promotion. So, you know, if your scholarship is focused on diversity and your colleagues think that that's a personal thing and not a professional thing, they might devalue the work you're doing or if you get low scores on student evaluations from students who are maybe talking more about your personal appearance, um, how you physically present to them in class instead of your pedagogical approach or your teaching effectiveness, that actually creates really serious implications for tenure and promotion as well. And then there are these interesting parallels that I discovered with regard to hiring and leadership a lot of the women of color in my study um, were not on like a focused path to legal academia when they were in law school or even later on in practice. They sort of fell into these roles. They, um, a lot of them call themselves accidental law professors or feel like they just sort of lucked into these positions. And then once they're in those positions, they kind of wonder if they really belong there. And um, they probably never saw anyone who looked like them when they themselves were in law school, or if they did, you know, maybe one or two women of color law professors. And it turns out that even folks who succeed in terms of, you know, publishing and getting tenure and being well-respected as law professors, they face some of those same challenges with regard to leadership. So, um, you know, is this somewhere where I really belong? People seem to not necessarily see me in that position. I don't see other people who look like me in those roles. And so a lot of it starts off as um, people, women of color, especially saying, oh, it's not really a job for me, or I don't really see myself in that role. And it seems initially like something very individual. 
But there are really deep systemic roots there that are pretty similar to those related to hiring, where it seems like, you know, maybe you're not sure you belong. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the methodology and approach of the book, because reading it, in a lot of respects, it felt kind of like, at least in part, an ethnography of the legal profession. Am I totally off base there? Or is that an element of what you were trying to do with the book? Well, so in my training, um, when I was getting a PhD in sociology, I did a lot of ethnographic work. um, And I thought of that, at least the way that I was taught in my PhD program, it was very focused on sort of observation and sometimes participant observation and thinking more about what you personally see and then taking, you know, very careful notes about what that is and recording it and um, sharing more about your own individual reporting. This project is... um, uh, is different in the sense that it is um, it does draw from qualitative data, just like an ethnographic study would, but it, it really doesn't incorporate much about my own personal experience or even the experiences that I personally witness. So it's less about my like attending a conference and sort of you know taking notes about some of the problematic race, times, gender things that I might witness as part of a panel that I attend, that would be an ethnographic study. And I think that would be really fascinating too. It'd be really interesting to see if um, some of what people might find in an ethnographic study might match um, what I found in my study. My study does draw from qualitative data as well as quantitative data. And so in the mixed method study, I collected survey data from all 93 participants in the study. And in the survey, I asked about a range of things, um, everything from um, publications to um, their experiences, the quality of their interactions with their colleagues and um, information about their relationships with students, as well as sort of the home life um, And then after the surveys were completed, I conducted about a 45 to 60 minute interview with each person in the study. And so this type of qualitative research, when I'm collecting interview data directly from the participants in the study, it really gives them an opportunity to share their own voice, to explain from literally their own perspective and using their own words what their experiences have been like. And for me, that was a really central part of the book. Um, One of the things that I was most excited about when I was first thinking through how to conduct this research, because I wanted to have an opportunity to highlight the actual voices of people who tend to be most marginalized in legal academia. So it was less about sort of my perspective on what they're going through. I mean, there certainly is some of that. I add a lot of you know, theory, um, and try to explain some of their experiences relating it to other things in the literature. But the voices of the actual participants themselves, I think, are what make the book um, so relatable to so many people, because, you know, you may see your own experiences reflected in what so many other people have gone through in legal academia. Um, And then I just, thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk a little bit about the methods. So methods is something that um, I'm super excited about Uh, as a sociologist. um, I think the methods in this project are really innovative and pretty different than how um, most projects, even that I've been involved in, have proceeded. When I give presentations to law faculty members or students, Um, I tend to kind of go quickly through the data uh, in terms of the methodology itself, because um, law faculty members as a whole are most interested in the findings generally. So um, I'm happy to give just a a quick intro to um, the methods in the project because they are pretty innovative. Um, So in the for the methods for the diversity in legal academia study, which is the study um, that I draw from for unequal profession, It follows a target sampling approach, and target sampling is something that's often used um, with vulnerable populations, but to make sure that you have a pretty broadly representative sample ultimately. So a lot of people are familiar with snowball sampling, where 
you know, you invite a few people to participate in your study, and then you ask everyone who participates to suggest other people who might also be interested. And then you reach out to all of those people. And then, you know, the more people who are in your study, the more people they nominate, and then you follow up with all of those and get more and more and more people. So your sample grows like a snowball grows. All right. Now, the challenge with snowball sampling is that it's pretty difficult to show that your sample is unbiased. Um, so, you know, if if I had asked you, Brian, to participate in the study and you had agreed, um, then I might ask you to nominate others and perhaps you'd nominate other people you know from your law school. Um, and then, you know, my sample would be pretty powerful in terms of, you know, being specific to Kentucky or to other places you might have lived and, you know, where you might have other friends, but it would be hard to generalize it to the entire United States, just as one example. And so target sampling attempts to correct that potential for bias, um, because you start with an original seed group of participants that's really diverse um, along whatever domains you want to capture. And then when you ask those people to nominate others, you don't just automatically reach out to all of those other people to invite them to participate. Instead, you have to be very selective in terms of who else you invite to join your study based on how you want to maintain the representation. So whatever those domains are, whatever those particular um, items or uh, ideas are that you want to make sure you're sort of you include in a broadly representative way. So all the things I mentioned earlier in terms of pre-tenure versus tenure, region of the country, selectivity of the school, race, gender, um, and by race or ethnicity, I don't mean just you know white versus non-white. I was very careful in the sample to include Black, Latina, Asian American, Native American, Middle Eastern and multiracial women um, and men, as well as white men and women, um, and to oversample in a purposeful way Native American women, because you know, if, if I included them in their, their rates of inclusion in, in legal academia, actually, I would have less than one out of my 100 participants. And, and I didn't want, you know, I needed enough so that I could say something meaningful about th this group, um, instead of having one person represent the group as a whole. Um, and so I, I maintained that um, broad representation as I was doing the data collection. Um, so if I already had two Black women from the West Coast, you know, probably one was tenured and one wasn't, but I wouldn't accept any other Black women from the West Coast, even if a bunch of people nominated other Black women from the West Coast to participate, because I also wanted Black women from the South and from the East Coast and from the Midwest. Um, and so it was a really painstaking process um, because I, of course, wanted to have enough people included in the sample, but I wanted to ensure that there was really broad representation. Um, and of course, I had to do this because there is no you know, open listing of all law professors in the United States um, and nothing that tells us you know, race or gender um, generally. You know, as a sociologist, I'm certainly not comfortable going to a website and attempting to categorize people based on how I see them. Um, I don't think that would work. Um, and there's there's really no um, database or anything of all law faculty that includes race or gender so that I could just draw from that to get a nationally representative sample. So in collecting and analyzing the data, were there particular observations that either confirmed things you expected to find going into the research or that were surprising to you that you hadn't expected to find? Like, as you were putting the project together, were there, were there elements that sort of jumped out at you as being important in structuring the final project? Yes, both of those things happened. Um, I'll say, you know, in terms of sort of broad confirmation, I... I went into this project expecting there would be some differences based on race and gender, you know, that that um, there are particular patterns that would stand out for women faculty or for women of color faculty that would be different from others. And that was definitely confirmed. Um, I had some idea of what some of those might be, but I, I went into it pretty open minded in terms of what the research itself might reveal. Um, and so, you know, in, in some ways, there, there's some overlap, too, between what was confirmed and what was a surprise, um, if I can characterize your question that way. And so one of the sort of surprising things to me 
even though, you know, it did in other ways confirm what my expectations were, is how the similarities and differences broke down. So the project is, you know, at heart, an intersectional project. I went into it specifically looking to center the experiences of women of color. And yet I went into it with my own sort of, you know, biases and expectations and, you know, the the work I'd been doing for a decade or more with law students, for example, in legal education. And so I sort of expected there to be um, a hierarchy that was based on race and gender. um, And I expected, you know, that there would be more privilege for white male faculty and that women of color faculty would face more obstacles. And then with regard to the groups in the middle, I I sort of expected there would be uh, a lot more similarities based on race, that white women would share a lot of the white privilege that their male colleagues did and have more status for example, than their colleagues who are men of color. And I was wrong about that. Um, And when I say I was wrong, what I mean is that there are more similarities that are based on gender that I discovered through the course of my research than there are based on race, to the extent you can tease those out. Um, And, you know, there are certainly a lot of unique experiences and challenges facing women of color. And yet a lot of the difficulties um, with regard to colleagues, with regard to challenges from students in the classroom, a lot of those um, are gender-based from what I can tell. And so um, the white women in the study have um, a lot of similarities to what their women of color colleagues are going through. Um, And there seems to be more privilege based on gender so that the men of color while they have, you know, their own unique set of obstacles are nevertheless afforded more respect generally, both by colleagues and by students, even than the white women in the study. Another thing that really surprised me is the number of lawsuits. Generally, this is something that's kept pretty quiet, I think. And there's a lot of stigma associated with, for example, not getting tenure or promotion. Um, even if you decide to fight against it, it's not generally something that people are really vocal about. Um, and so, I, of course, I knew that this happened occasionally, but I was not aware the extent to which it happened, the number of people who found outside counsel specifically to combat some sort of bias in the process um, where, you know, where the result was that they were not granted tenure or promotion. And then they hire this outside lawyer, fight against it, and ultimately, um, generally, they are successful. So that, to me, was also a big surprise. Well, Samira, I wonder if you could talk about how that, or how these kind of observations that you're making play out in particular contexts. And I was thinking maybe in particular, you could talk about the initial hiring context, which is obviously a really important one to, to legal academia. Sort of what kind of experiences did you find that women, people of color, and women of color had in the hiring process? And sort of like, where were they similar? Where were they different? And how did this experiences that they had impact the kind of hiring process and their ability to be successful in the hiring process? Well, the hiring process um, that most candidates typically follow or most people who are hired typically follow is sort of a very formal process um, that I'm assuming most of your listeners will be very familiar with um, that's organized through AALS and you know requires some pretty rigid adherence to a lot of formal rules. Um, and so it's it can be a pretty confusing process um, if you don't really know exactly what you're doing. Um, And so people who had mentors, for example, were really grateful um, for having somebody guide them through the process. Um, It was much more likely for the men in my sample to have mentors, um, partly because some of them went to law school for the purpose of becoming a law professor. And so you can imagine if you knew in law school that you wanted to teach law, you might approach everything slightly differently you would probably go to office hours, you would cultivate relationships with your own professors, um, you would probably tell them, you know, relatively early that you were interested in law teaching and try to put yourself on a path towards that career outcome, um, if you knew it early on. 
most of the women of color in the sample, I mean, literally almost every single one, um, I think out of the 63 women of color, there were maybe two um, who knew earlier that they were interested in law teaching. Um, but almost everybody in the sample who were women of color didn't even consider this as a viable option for them. And so they really weren't cultivating those mentors when they were in law school. And so it was just a much more complicated process. They, they didn't really know, you know, even just filling out the form, like one of the women in my sample said that when she filled out her FAR form, you know, they ask you, you know, what are the areas you would most like to teach? And um, in our interview, she said, I put race and law because that's what I'm really interested in. Um, and after she had submitted everything, she sent it to um, a professor who she hadn't been that close to, but, you know, she thought, well, maybe this is someone who could help me ultimately now that I'm actually trying to get a law teaching job. And he called her immediately and he was like, that's not what you put, you know, for your top choice of courses. You start with the 1L courses, the core courses that schools are really going to want. Um, you can certainly include race and law, but you don't list it as like the primary course you want to teach. Um, and so there are a lot of examples like this where there are so many unwritten rules um, where people don't know, like, you know, what am I supposed to wear to the dinner the night before my on-campus interview? How many interviews am I supposed to set up? Um, it's just, mm -hmm. it's very unclear, I think, if you don't have someone to guide you through that process. And then, you know, sometimes for women of color, um, there are people who, you know, try to help in some ways, but maybe ultimately are not that helpful in terms of the actual career goals of the individual herself. Um, in the book, I sort of follow chronologically through the career trajectory of a law professor. So starting with hiring, um, moving on to interactions with colleagues, and then with students, and then talking about um, tenure and promotion leadership and work-life balance before I conclude with like sources of support and strategies and solutions. Um, and so the very first chapter is what we're talking about now, you know, the hiring of folks who maybe didn't necessarily feel like they belonged and weren't really purposefully cultivating the relationships they would need to succeed at that path. Um, and the first person that I introduce um, in this chapter is a Native American woman named Jennifer, who um, started off as um, at a law school that was just near her house before she even went on the formal market. Um, and she says um, in our interview, and I, I include this in the book, she says, I actually had two tenured professors come in um, to her office, she means, and say, we will be hiring you and we don't want you to go on the market because somebody else will get you and we want you. So don't go. And so now, you know, when, when we, had, we had the conversation, she's like, yeah, looking back, maybe that wasn't the smartest move, right? She doesn't even know what other schools she might have ended up at, but she and her partner were already well settled um, in the area. And she thought, well, how great would it be if I end up here? Um, and that was it, right? That's sort of how her career progressed, because there weren't really mentors specifically looking out for her. And I, I should mention, actually, there's, of course, outright discrimination and bias as well, um, picking the, the sort of subtle version is, you know, just picking people with whom you are the most comfortable, like the cultural fit idea of, well, I kind of, I, I really like that guy. And so, you know, he seems like he would fit in really well here. Um, that's sort of the more subtle version. And then there's, you know, direct outright bias too against people who, um, you know, where individual faculty members feel like, I don't want that person to be here. I don't like what they study or, you know, how they talk, what they talk about. Um, and then those people um, are much less likely to be hired as well. So, Samir, so I mean, this is one element of the hiring process that bluntly really struck home to me, what you were saying in the book, because I feel like I've seen it on various levels, a sort of way in which people already on law faculties seem to have ideas about what faculty members should look like and what faculty members should do as scholars that subtly or maybe not so subtly structure ultimately who they decide to hire. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what people said about that in the interviews that you did and what you observed in sort of looking at their responses collectively in terms of how the sort of heuristics 
of the legal academy structure who ultimately is successful. Well, I mean, it's exactly as you've said. I think we have this formula of what we expect a law professor should look like. And it's very hard, I think, for a lot of schools to push back against that. Um, often schools that do um, are reluctant to do so because they feel like they're taking, you know, in their minds, what would be a risk because they're deviating from the norm. Um, and so often I think it's not necessarily based on purposeful discrimination where they think we don't want to hire any people of color. I, there might be schools that do that openly or, you know, quietly, but purposefully. But I think it's much more likely that schools sort of think this is the traditional path this is how most other people got here to the extent that, you know, we like those people and we think we've been successful. We kind of want to keep doing it that way. Now, in my mind, you know, and what I tell a lot of schools that have reached out to me to ask about hiring specifically is to think about what they want on their faculty. If they're reaching out to me because, you know, they're concerned about a lack of faculty of color and they want to do better with hiring. Well, you know, then it's easier, right? Because I can tell them directly, if you think you want something different, then you probably have to go about it a different way, right? Following the traditional accepted path um, doesn't mean you're not successful. Clearly, you know, the faculty who are already here are doing great. But if you're trying to add something different, you might need to go about finding that person in a different way. Um, if you keep doing things the way that they're, they've been done, then you're probably going to get a pretty similar outcome. And so for law faculty members, you know, the traditional path is going to an elite school. Um, and, you know, that ideally means Harvard or Yale um, or Stanford, perhaps. So um, like today, more than 40% of law professors went to either Harvard or Yale. Um, and over 85% of law professors went to one of the top 12 schools. Um, and it doesn't matter where you're teaching, right? Just it, no matter where you're teaching, um, you it's really difficult to get a law teaching job if you weren't at one of those elite schools. Once you're at that school, it's expected that you are on law review. Um, hopefully you clerk, um, ideally a federal appellate clerkship after law school, maybe more than one, um, and that you've already published by the time you apply for jobs. Increasingly in the last few years, um, it's been really difficult, I think, for people on the entry-level market to get hired, even if they are going to become stellar scholars and colleagues, um, if they are not launched directly from a visiting assistant professor program or a fellowship. Um, and, you know, as we've seen from Professor Saralowski's entry-level hiring report, Three years in a row now, it's you know around the fifty percent mark of new hires who also have a doctoral degree. So not just an advanced degree, but specifically a doctoral degree. And you know that's the traditional path now. And of course, that's going to weed out particular people who didn't know early enough they were supposed to do those things. Who maybe got a lot more money to go to a top twenty school. Um, but not in the top 10. And so, you know, we're happy to not have to take on $150,000 in loans um, to still get a very high quality education, not realizing that their opportunities for advancement in a law teaching career are probably diminished compared to what they otherwise would have been at a, you know, elite, really super elite school. And so it's just more difficult if you don't have, um, that training and background. Now, what needs to change, I think, is, you know, how we think of who we're hiring. So I, I don't think it's necessarily risky to hire someone who hasn't followed a traditional path. If this is someone who you believe is going to produce high quality scholarship, then it's more important, especially if you're looking to add diversity to your faculty, to think about what that person's going to add. Um, one of the people in my study said directly, because I write on diversity issues, it's seen as not scholarly. Well, you have to be open to different types of scholarship, right? You might not get only sort of the traditional normative legal scholarship that draws from case law or textual interpretation of statutes. Um, there might be different kinds of scholarship, whether it's empirical scholarship um, or, you know, audits or things that are kind of outside of the norm for um, what we're used to seeing in law reviews. Um, 
I think it's okay and it's necessary actually to be excited about that type of work as well, especially if we're trying to reach a different type of audience. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that your book really kind of crystallized for me was the extent to which a lot of ostensibly kind of facially neutral criteria are actually functionally discriminatory. And in particular, I kind of feel like there's a way in which law faculty almost say like, well, this is the person who's retiring and we need to hire someone who's just like them. And lo and behold, that's also someone who looks like them. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it, right? Not not just with the example that you're giving, but even in really broad ways. Um, I think it can be a really helpful way too to help lawyers, you know, because for the most part, we're all lawyers if we're in law teaching. So to help lawyers understand, you know, you're not necessarily purposefully doing anything wrong. Your intent here is actually not that important. If the outcome is one that is not ideal, right? So yeah, sure. You know, let's say you've put these materials together that don't openly discriminate against anyone. Well, you might not get the results you want if, you know, all you're doing is making things facially neutral. You might have to purposefully reach out to folks um, who otherwise would not even know that to consider a job in law teaching if that's something you want them to consider, if you want them to be excited about your school. Um, and so there's uh, one of the black men in my sample actually said something very similar to this directly. It's one of my favorite quotes because he says, if you would like a woman of color on your faculty, then you have to go and hire a woman of color. If you don't give it the full attention it deserves, if you just hope a woman of color comes your way, you know, you're probably not going to get the results you want. Um, and so I think, you know, w w the way that you've laid it out, it's sort of, well, are we really just hoping to replace somebody, you know, who, if they're retiring, perhaps they've been teaching for 30, 40, 50 years. And are we trying to get that same person today? Well, then, you know, it's going to be really hard to hire a diverse candidate um, or anyone who's a non-traditional law faculty candidate. And even if you say, well, you know, let's be open to anyone who comes up. Well, you know, that's like opening the door and hoping the right person falls in. You might have to actually go out the door, you know, try to recruit somebody at a place where um, they may not be looking directly for you. They may not be following the formal hiring process or even know yet that they could be a stellar law professor. But if your goal is to find those people, then, you know, you might need to think out of the box a little bit um, and employ some of these different recruiting strategies to get the results you want. Mira, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how these factors and related factors affect people after the hiring actually happens like when we're thinking about uh, promotion and tenure sort of what kind of experiences did people report to you and when you looked at the experiences that were reported what did you see kind of in the aggregate in terms of challenges that uh, some candidates experienced in in that process and and in particular I was really interested in the observations you made, as you said earlier, about, you know, tensions approaching, you know, or, or arriving even at litigation around this. Like, how did that happen? Because from the perspective of a faculty member, like, I didn't know that that was even a thing. And it was quite a shock to me. And, you know, it, for me, that was a really sort of revelatory part of the book. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it was a surprise to me too. I knew it happened some, but I, I didn't recognize the extent to which it happens. And I think that's due to the stigma that's associated with being rejected. I mean, imagine you've spent all these you know, years really invested and then the school says, no, we don't want you. Um, that was just a, a very difficult emotional time um, for the women in my sample who talked about initially, you know, not getting tenure or being promoted, even if many of them ultimately did. Um, so the most common reason that was stated for 
tenure or promotion denials in my sample had to do with students. Um, so, you know, there are three things that most schools look for with regard to tenure and promotion. And that's, you know, um, in a summary way, it's excellent, demonstrated excellence in teaching, scholarship and service. Um, and as one of the people in my sample, you know, she said, my mentor told me directly, nobody doesn't get tenure because of service. <laughs> so like, yes, do your service, but, you know, um, it's not going to be the make or break thing. Um, and um, so, you know, and the one that tends to matter the most for many institutions is scholarship. What are you publishing? Where are you publishing it? Who else appreciates what you're publishing? Are you demonstrating that you are uh, a respected member of the field, um, ideally nationally? And then there's teaching. Um, and, you know, what's interesting about this particular phenomena is that a lot of schools say that they care a lot about teaching. And I think increasingly schools really do. Um, invest a lot in their students. Um, as the director of the law school survey of student engagement, Lessie, that for me is very exciting that, you know, there is this recognition um, that students are a really important piece of the law school enterprise. Um, and yet teaching is generally at a lot of schools, you know, not sort of put on a pedestal and valued in the same deep way that scholarship is. What's um, Perhaps surprising, though, initially, is that even though, you know, the expectation is really that you prioritize scholarship at most schools, teaching is the reason that women of color are most often given for a tenure or promotion denial if they are denied. Um, and often this takes the form of comments um, and scores, numbers in student evaluations, um, and this was awful for a number of reasons. Um, one of them is that in the study, I, I asked people as a part of our interview to talk about the best thing about their law school. Um, so, you know, if they could tell me something wonderful about their law school, what the best thing is, what would they say? And so many women, and especially women of color, talked about students, talked about, you know, students being the best part of their job, um, interacting with students being, you know, their favorite thing to do. And so um, a lot of women of color are really invested in students and spend a lot of time with students. Um, this can create some challenges with regard to tenure and promotion, because if you are spending, you know, 10, 15 hours a week meeting with students, um, perhaps on top of, you know, the classroom time and other obligations that you have, that's going to eat into time that you would otherwise spend doing something else. Um, and so most schools don't give a trade-off, for example, um, where if they recognize you're spending a lot of time with students or other service responsibilities, they might, you know, take off one unit of teaching or lighten your load in some other way. Um, that's pretty uncommon. And so a lot of women of color are really overburdened by this service. Um, and you remember a moment ago, I said, no one doesn't get tenure because they didn't do enough service. Well, here are all these people extra investing in service, um, partly because they love it, partly because the students need it, um, and partly because the institution often expects it of them, even though it's not really valued or recognized. And then, you know, the third challenge that sort of fits into this paradox is that there can be, you know, just a couple students in a class um, that can really make things really complicated for the woman of color professor. Sometimes this takes the shape of, you know, a person who asks um, obnoxious or um, disruptive questions in class. Um, when this has happened in my own classroom, for example, you know, I, I know I've done this. This is my 12th year of teaching. So I've done this long enough that when one student challenges me, I can see, you know, 65 other students rolling their eyes. Like they know that it's disruptive to their learning, too. Um, but it still, you know, it takes time for me to respond to that student. Um, even if it is a, you know, a direct challenge to my authority, let's say it's still something where I need to reestablish control of the classroom in a gentle and meaningful way, um, and redirect us right back to talking about civil procedure, which is often the point of why we're there. Um, and so sometimes it takes the form of these direct classroom confrontations. Um, and it can also take the shape of, um, really negative or, um, unuseful, at least, um, comments in student evaluations. And these, you know, the examples that I've gotten have run the gamut from things that focus on women's appearance. This comes up repeatedly. Um, it's true for white women, although it's, 
you know, kind of much more common, I guess, for women of color. Um, and this can be things like, why, why isn't she wearing her wedding ring? Is she trying to tease us? To um, She flips her hair over her shoulder too much. Um, and the woman who told me this about, you know, who received this comment was like, I'm actually not a coquettish person. I don't really know how to flirt. And so I'm surprised that my students actually respond to what I'm doing as flirting, right? Like flipping my hair over my shoulder. Um, usually, you know, these are comments that are not accompanied by any sort of constructive, useful information. Um, and, you know, they're sometimes they're sort of focused on appearance in a not useful way, where it's clear that the students are seeing their professor as a woman, as opposed to, you know, an expert in a particular area of law, they're responding to her sexually or on, in a gendered way, as opposed to as, you know, a legal expert. And sometimes they're outright biased and cruel, like a, a woman remembered from decades prior, um, a comment about her, I mean, one of them was, she's black, enough said, I don't even know what that means, right? Like, how is that useful in, in terms of e evaluating somebody's pedagogical effectiveness? Or another Black woman who had um, a comment from a student evaluation that said, I know we have to have affirmative action, but do we have to have this woman? Right? So when you're getting comments like that, um, and those are used, you know, like the comments might not be things that colleagues look at and say, oh, you know, well, yeah, definitely you know, they might not say, yeah, we don't know why we have affirmative action, but we definitely don't know why we have this woman either. And yet th the biased comments don't cancel out the low numerical evaluations from a particular student. So a student might expose their own biases in the comments of an evaluation, but that person, you know, if they gave their professor a one out of five or a one out of 10, you know, for, for all of the questions on the student evaluation, they'll still be included. They'll still count um, against that professor. And so that certainly creates a lot of challenges when um, women of color are going up for tenure or for promotion. So one thing I couldn't help but wonder, and this might be hard to tease out of the data you actually collected, but I'd be interested to kind of hear your thoughts on the subject is that, you know, I can't help but wonder whether to the extent that schools are using or that faculties are using teaching evaluations and other kinds of related data about teaching in the promotion process. I mean, to what extent do you think it's the reason for the problem or to what extent do you think it's maybe kind of an excuse well, I mean, I'll say that it is um, the challenges that many women of color are facing with their students are often paralleled with regard to the faculty. So it's not like they have this fabulous experience as law professors where everyone treats them with dignity and respect. And yet there's this you know, occasional pushback from students in the classroom. Many of the women, um, white women as well in the sample, talked about the ways in which um, they face a lot of silencing and mansplaining and heat-peating um, in the classroom, um, not only in the classroom, but in like faculty meetings. Um, and that seems to be like the venue where it came up most often. Um, and so, you know, these are things like, uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're so pervasive. So sometimes they're, you know, things where you're just ignored. Um, Sometimes there are things where, you know, men expect that they are experts in a particular thing that you're an expert in. And so they try to explain it to you. Right. That's um, where the, the mansplaining idea comes from. Um, or there's like this. There's one example from Carla, a Latina in my sample. And, you know, she said it in this particular way. But other people in my sample talk about the same thing happening to them where she says, I've counted over 10 times on my faculty where I've said something and basically nobody responds when she says it. And then a male faculty colleague has repeated it. And another male colleague has said, good idea, right? And so they're giving credit for Carla's idea, not to Carla, but to the guy who repeated it after she said it in the first place. Um, and so the challenges that we're seeing in the classroom where students are you know, have this presumption of incompetence working against the professor who's a woman of color or, you know, have a hard time seeing her as an authority figure, um, don't really respond to her as an expert. 
we're seeing some of that happening with colleagues as well. And so, you know, I, I don't know if, if you know, to, to answer your question about like, is, is this an excuse or is this causing the problem? What I can say is that the challenge that many women of color experience in the classroom is one that parallels their experience often with their colleagues as well. So um, the lack of respect or um, an unwillingness to recognize this person as having great ideas and being able to, you know, speak in a meaningful way about what she cares about um, and knows a lot about, that's something that we see from colleagues, just like we see it from students. Well, one of the things that I found, frankly, most appalling in the information, the data that you collected was the degree of sexual harassment that women reported experiencing as faculty members. And I mean, honestly, I had no idea that that was happening. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the experiences that they reported. Yeah, I mean, in the book, I'm very careful to, you know, make make a note that I'm not directly, you know, I'm not an employment law sexual harassment litigator, and I'm not saying these are viable claims, um, but some of the things, I mean, they they just leap out at you, right? If you're a, a junior scholar and pre-tenured and the dean has just gotten divorced and then invites you to lunch and you think it's a professional meeting, but instead he hits on you, he tells you directly, um, you, you know, you should know I'd be really interested in dating you if you weren't a junior professor here, you know, like basically saying, I know I'm your boss, so this is inappropriate, but I'm just going to tell you anyway. Um, things like that were really appalling to me too. Or, you know, to have senior male colleagues um, talking to junior faculty, talking to any any faculty about their body, you know, making inappropriate comments. Um, that was, I, I was really surprised to see that happening as well. And, you know, I, I, I will point out that it that um, experience seems to be less pervasive than the mansplaining and the heat-heating and the silencing, for example. Um, those kinds of things, I think, are happening like literally every single day at any faculty meeting you go to. Um, whereas the sexual harassment is, you know, perhaps kept quieter um, or hopefully less common. Um, but it's nevertheless shocking for a number of reasons. You know, perhaps greatest among them because we're talking about law schools, right? This is, um, you know, people often ask me, like, you know, is it unique to legal academia? And it certainly isn't. You know, these are examples of things that are happening throughout the legal profession, in other disciplines, in academia, um, in other professional settings generally, right? There are challenges, especially for women, and certainly even more directly for women of color. But I kind of had higher expectations for us. You know, we are where people go to learn about the law. And so the fact that these are things that are happening in a building where people are supposed to be steeped in the law, um, I think that's part of why I was really shocked and appalled to find that it is, you know, maybe not happening every day at every school, but just that it is a pattern, nevertheless, that was identified in the data that people who are respected as teachers of the law would nevertheless so openly break the law um, against their own colleagues in the workplace. I, I wonder if you could also talk a little bit about your own experiences. I know you, you've been working in this area and doing research in this area for a long time. And this book is the culmination of a longstanding research project of yours. Do the experiences that people reported that you document and analyze in the book reflect your own experiences to any degree uh, as to how other scholars, whether at your school or at other schools, sort of in the legal ac academy more generally, have reacted to, responded to, sort of thought about your scholarship? And have you seen any change over time? in terms of sort of how people have have sort of looked at the work that you're doing and has it affected to any degree sort of its reception within legal academy? Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting that um, there has, I think, been a change 
just recently, um, in these last few months, as the country has erupted in protest over George Floyd and other acts of violence against Black men and Black women, especially, uh, I think schools are recognizing that you know maybe they need to do more than signal their commitment to diversity with like a you know bland statement on their website. Um, and so I think a lot of schools are doing more. Um, they are inspired to act. And I am glad to see that that is happening now, that there is, I think, I hope, um, an actual change. And maybe, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that it's not just a moment, that it's not like, right now, let's find a speaker and bring her out and have her talk to us. But, um, you know, there are more and more faculty resolutions where schools are saying, we want to work on these things this year. Um, and I'm I'm really hopeful um, and optimistic that that is going to result in real change. The book is a culmination of, you know, this particular research project and a lot of time and effort and energy spent on thinking really carefully and I hope thoughtfully about challenges in legal education broadly. Um, the the time that we're in, though, you know, both with regard to the mass protests and also just the pandemic experience generally, um, those are also, you know, affording me a way of thinking about the work that I've done um, in a slightly different way. I mean, I, you know, I write in the in the preface to the book, I think, about wanting this book to inspire change. Um, you know, the the work that I do with Lessie, the work that I do in this book, the work that I've done um, previously with law students, it's all been action-oriented. Um, you know, I, I weave a lot of theory into the work that I do, and it's still, you know, the goal is always to make change. And so right now, during this time of COVID, where many of us are still at home, um, where many of us are home with young kids who are at home, <laughs> not going to school, not going to camp, you know, that creates a lot of new challenges too. And so that's, I think, what, you know, how things are changing slightly and where I think um, some of my future, short-term at least future um, attention will go in terms of research trajectory. Because I, I'm really, you know, concerned about the ways in which the challenges that I document in the book, both with regard to the extra service burdens that many women of color faculty are expected to pick up on campus, and the default parenting and, you know, extra responsibilities for childcare, for housekeeping, for extended community service, that are placed on the shoulders of women of color to perform at home. Um, we didn't talk about that much, but there's a whole chapter on work-life balance in the book. All of those are intensifying right now. You know, it just so happens that the very things that are the most extreme in terms of differences in the book are getting only more extreme right now under COVID. And so, um, one thing I'm I'm looking into, for example, uh, that we've seen in other fields is that. As early as April, editors in peer review journals were noticing and talking publicly about a lack of submissions from women authors from the month previously. And, you know, March is when over 100 universities closed in the course of a day or two, and many school districts closed as well. Um, so that was a month where many women were learning how to move their classes online, but also were providing primary childcare for children who were otherwise in school. And most schools remained closed through the spring. Very few camps were open in the summer. Um, I mean, I'm experiencing this myself now too, since you're asking about my own experience as well, right? And so we've seen in a documented way that women were much less likely to submit for publication um, articles in the time that, you know, COVID had um, created these extra burdens for them at work and at home. I haven't seen anything that looks into that specifically for law publishing um, in law journals. And so that's one area that I'm looking into going forward to get a sense of how how has the pandemic affected the scholarly productivity, for example, of women 
faculty members. When schools are closed, when camps are closed, when we are expected to be their primary caregivers at home, and then also pick up a lot of the extra service responsibilities at work, whether that's organizing meetings or helping to come up with new policies, um, all of the extra meetings that many women of color um, engage in with students. You know, often we used to be able to get to class early and talk to students or stay after. Um, and now everything is much more public in the sense that, you know, I can't really have a private conversation with the student on Zoom. Um, and so it's a lot harder to do that um, work. I used to be able to go to, you know, the lounge where I know a lot of students are hanging out and just sort of walk through, you know, slowly knowing that a couple of students would gravitate towards me because they really wanted to talk to me about something, but maybe they didn't want to come to my office. Well, I can't do that now. Right. And so it's a lot harder for the people who have always been engaged with students to stay engaged with students. Um, but it's a time when students need us more than they ever have, perhaps, where, you know, it's there's so many things that are changing for legal ed. Um, our most vulnerable students are the ones who um, are probably struggling the most. And so I'm, I'm really you know, disturbed about what this might mean, not only for the immediate scholarly productivity, like that article that you know, she thought she was going to get written in, um, and submitted in March. Actually, she didn't finish, and then camps and schools were closed, so she actually didn't submit it in the you know, current cycle either. I mean, hopefully that article will still get out next year, but what are the long-term consequences? How is this going to affect the professional trajectory long-term for women of color scholars, for women as a whole? I mean, really for anyone who's a non-traditional member of legal academia who maybe hasn't always been as welcomed, who's expected to do more or different things, and especially things that are less valued by the institution, I am really worried um, about where that might go and what we might see as a result. So Mira, I wonder if in closing, you could reflect on what we might do as law professors, both individually and institutionally, to help solve or at least mitigate some of the problems that you identify in your book. Yeah. So the concluding, concluding chapter in the book um, introduces some individual strategies as well as structural solutions. Um, and there are some you know, great individual strategies that women themselves have adopted um, to think about how to improve their own situation, for example. Um, you know, whether you're inviting a lot of colleagues to come to your class during um, the year that you're up for promotion and tenure so that, you know, as Susan, one of the women in my sample did, um, she knew that she had, in her words, abysmal evaluations. And so she invited other colleagues to come in um, and she knew her teaching was actually solid. Uh, and so their, their evaluations were positive and that, in her words, canceled out the negative student bias. Um, there are lots of things that individuals can do to help colleagues too, you know, which um, there are lots of ways to be an ally. That's one way to think about it. Although really improving these challenges is good, not just for the, you know, individual woman of color colleague who you're helping, but it's actually better for all of the students who are going to learn from her. It's better for your institution and that makes it better for legal ed as a whole. Um, one really easy thing, I was just tweeting about this. I'm kind of new on Twitter, but um, somebody, I was uh, amplifying the voice of somebody else who was tweeting this today, and that's just to cite women, to be purposeful about doing that. Um, you know, if you're asking a research assistant to do a literature review, tell them directly that you want them to include women scholars or women of color scholars specifically. Um Somebody asked me at a at a book club meeting recently, like, well, what can I, you know, as a white man, what can I do to help? Um, if you notice that your colleagues, that women of color colleagues are doing more, that they're providing more service, you know, pick up some of that load. It, it is potentially going to be at a cost to you, right? Because often when, you know, an administrator is like, who can do this work? Like, Sometimes people are excited to do it, but often, you know, it's something nobody really has the time to do. But, you know, recognize that if you say no to it, someone else is going to do it. And often that someone else is going to be a woman colleague. 
And so pick up the slack a little bit. Um, if you're already doing a lot, you know, keep doing it. Um, or if you haven't really noticed who else is doing that work, maybe be purposeful about paying attention to that, you know, recognize what else is, is going on. Um, there's a new initiative that is spearheaded by a number of Black deans um, in partnership with AALS, which is the Anti-Racist Clearinghouse. And, you know, they lay out a number of phases of, you know, how to become an anti-racist institution. Um, and the first thing to do is really, you know, pay attention to where you are. Think about, you know, um, listen to what's going on around you, educate yourself, and recognize what some challenges at your own institution might be and how you can push against them. Now, we can't just expect individuals to like push against structural bias and beat it, right? We obviously need some broad structural solutions as well. So like the Anti-Racist Clearinghouse is one where um, it's providing some broader perspectives on what collectively we can do. Um, there have been individual um, schools that have where the faculty has banded together to come up with broad action items to focus on for the year. Um, one thing that I'm doing personally, because, you know, as I mentioned, the, this is a time where a lot of schools are invested in um, making change and in signaling that they care about issues of race and gender and diversity. And so I've gotten a lot of um, calls and emails to give lectures and presentations at schools. And one thing that I'm doing now that I have never done before, I mean, I was giving probably a talk a week um, for the whole last year um, since the book came out. And now with an increasing number of invitations to do these events, um, I'm asking or, you know, maybe demanding the schools partner with me in thinking through how they can be better. And so I've asked them to share particular action items with me that they will be working on this year so that I can incorporate those into the presentation that I give. So yeah, that's a little bit more work for me because I have to think more carefully about how each school might be able to meet their goals. But I feel better about it because I know the school is actively working on making these changes and I'm excited to be in partnership with them. Well, Mira, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about your research and your excellent book. And in light of what you just said, um, if there's anything I can do to be more thoughtful and mindful of these issues, I'd be delighted if you could help me along the way. Well, thank you for, for offering that. I mean, that's the first step, right, is thinking about where you are and how you can do better. And all of us, I think, can do better. So I, I really appreciate you inviting me to join you. And I've had a lot of fun doing it. Go 
Everybody had one ambition in life Was to be mothers and wives What do you saw, my friends, you bound to see You think change entirely Well, you next hear of them as candidate For president of these United States So I'm warning you men to assault control And stay with men with rule Get their tendency, they will show us no sympathy. They will make us do strange things, goodness knows. Crop flows, even wash flows. In the end, these tyrants become our master. We have to push pure ambulator. And in the night, when they go out to roam, well, we mind the babies at home. 